The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, October 17th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Rex Tillerson didn't ask for the job, never wanted the job, isn't good at the job, isn't allowed to do the job. Still, I want him on the job. I think I've said that before. I've thought it before, probably tweeted it before. But, you know, I got a podcast, got to put it out there. It's bad enough that Trump is fighting with Tehran and Pyongyang, but even worse, that during this critical moment of world instability, he's also trading barbs with his own secretary of state, Rex Tillerson. And that could lead to a much more dangerous crisis, according to Republican Senator Bob Corker, who said Trump's statements on foreign policy, quote, castrate his secretary of state, posing a threat to national security. The thing about how tenuous the Tillerson position is, is I care, but I don't care more than last week when I was told it was tenuous. Back then, it was reported that he called Trump a moron. There was a a idea of uh, IQ tests that could have been a pay-per-view special. I was on board. I get it. Trump doesn't like Tillerson. Tillerson doesn't like Trump. In the news, I've seen so much reporting essentially on how thin the ice is beneath his feet. I don't care about ice thickness stories. Uh, Nikki Haley will call this palace intrigue. It's not a palace. It's not intriguing. That's my whole point. It's not intriguing. When Tillerson goes, definitely tell me. If Tillerson's there, I know you have a scoop. I know you have someone up high who told you you thought it was bad. It's really, really bad. I, as a regular human American, do not care. Do not care about the thickness of the ice. I mean, and the world is a very complicated place. There are all the countries. It's 193 countries. It's a lot on his plate. But these days, you've got your Uyghurs, your Kurds, your Yazidis, your Rohingyas. I wonder if you asked Trump in a press conference for his comment on the Uyghurs, the Kurds, the Wukalars, the Yazidis, the Rohingyas, if he'd say, wait, what are the Wukalars? That would be a great test. I mean, you know. No one on the right would like you afterwards, but I think it'd be worth it. I remember there was a time when we used to worry about the Janjaweed and the Druze. Now the Druze seems solved, but the one that's never solved is the Kurds. The one constant is the Kurds. So I don't know how this is affecting ice thickness, but if Tillerson is casting about for a position to take uh, on the Iraqis, U.S. ally propped up, and the Kurds, like kind of the only functional part of Iraq, I say this. Just in keeping with longstanding U.S. tradition, also in keeping in step with the tradition of the world, you got to screw over the Kurds. I don't like it. It's immoral. But we have been screwing over the Kurds since there have been Kurds. And there have been Kurds a long, long time. The Kurds have always wanted to help the United States in its goals of deposing this or that dictator. The Kurds had their shit together in Iraq long before anyone else did in Iraq. And still, we turn our back on them and screw them. Sorry, Kurds. It's the American way. On the show today, Dexter Guff is a personal growth guru and a life coach's life coach. No, seriously, literally, though not literally. He's not a real person. He is a character. And I will interview Peter Oldring, who has a podcast called Dexter Guff is Smarter Than You. It's a panoply podcast. So here now, Peter Oldring, he's here to crush it.
Dexter Guff is a lot of things. He's the Kevin Bacon of LinkedIn. He's a thought leader. He's an organizer of conferences, about conferences. But mainly, Dexter Guff is smarter than you. Let's do this. D, this is going to be fun. I dare you to listen. It's time. E, on your mental treadmill, what takes priority? Your goals or your dreams? Dexter Guff. X, technology, entertainment, design. Throw that out the window. That's old news. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Come on now. What was your biggest failure? No, no, no. Let me guess. I don't think you're ready. I'm Dexter Guff, and I'm smarter than you. Dexter Guff is, like I said, a lot of things. He's a a new age guru, definitely a thought leader. But fundamentally, and at base, Dexter Guff, whose podcast is on the Panoply Network, is Peter Oldring. And we're going to talk about this character he's created. Hello, Peter. How are you? Hey, Mike. How's it going, man? So I'm I'm well. I'm excited to talk to you not in character because I love the joke. But as we were just talking before, I'm not sure there is a joy to some people not getting the joke. And when Spinal Tap went on the Joe Franklin show, I don't know if you know about this. Yes. Yeah. And he didn't get it. It was great for their fans to congratulate themselves on being in on the joke. But it is a balance you have to strike. So what is that balance uh, in your mind? Yeah. You know. You know, it's, it's really interesting. We, we really did have that conversation of, you know, do we want to show our hand entirely with the show and, and say right up front, this is a comedy show, or do we want to sort of let people kind of gravitate to it, have the question in their mind? And, and you know, it is in our interest that we ride this very dry, straight line of sort of playing this uh, absurd character who is at one extreme of this, you know, line of thinkfluencers or thought influencers. Yeah. And it's a space worthy of satirizing a little bit, you know? And, and so Dexter Guff for us is, is kind of this extreme character on, on one side of it who really is serving up all of those recognizable tropes in that way. But we really begin to, through the course of the season of the show, find other elements of Dexter Guff's life that are very different than what he is projecting. I guess there is a school of thought that would say that so much of the stuff you're parodying yeah. is self-parody already. Yeah. You know, it's hard to do. There are some formats that are hard to do a great parody of. Like, I don't know if there's ever been a great parody of morning television. Right. I don't know if there's been a great parody <laughs> yeah. of the Jerry Springer show. Right. right? Yeah. There, there, yeah. there, there, there are yeah. exceptions, but sure. whereas, whereas Colbert did a great parody of the right-wing blowhard. Yes. Is... You obviously thought this was ripe for parody. You right. went for that. But did you worry about, you know, this that the space of the thinkfluencer yeah. is such a, you know, joke without even trying to be right. that it's like not as rewarding to make a joke about this thing that's uh, inherently a joke? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think that we had, you know, we, we had said this is a fun character. OK, so so right. a this is a fun character. This is a fun space to play in. But we we we're really conscious about not just kind of letting it be a one note joke. Yeah. Like, it, you know, it, it, that would work as a four minute sketch. You know, as a, as a one-off thing that would really work. So the it's one like, joke would be the phrases, for yeah, instance. Exactly. His attitude in the phrases. Yeah, and that would be funny. And that would be a great sketch on yeah, SNL or Exactly, like yeah. exactly. And so for us, we we kind of wanted to make that that space uh, a bit broader. Like, uh, rather the, um, you know, just his life. His life a little bit fuller, right? And so for us, it, it really is this idea of kind of trying to introduce all aspects of who Dexter is so that, yes, we get the joke of the, the person that he's parodying and, and that he's satirizing. But really what we hope people, what we hope listeners uh, sort of get invested in is the other elements in his life, the other people that he brings in a conversation. So the show itself, it, it actually is a serial 
show. If you listen to the season, the person that Dexter Guff is at the beginning of the season is very different than who he's going to be at the end of the season. You know, and then and then obviously mixed in with that, we have a special guest every episode that Dex gets to improvise with. And, and these are, you know, again, other characters that we have some amazing, talented improvisers that we know from Second City or from other comedy uh, venues that we've sort of done stuff with in the past. So to have them on the show and, and improvising and having that relationship there is really fun. But it really is, in our minds, trying to like it's a little character exploration and it happens to be the backdrop happens to be that he is a thinkfluencer but that in a larger context it's this is a character and we begin to find other things about his life i think that right now if you read the reviews on apple podcasts yeah the fans are getting it but i don't know that they're getting that he the character has an arc different things happen i think they're seeing it like the colbert rapport or a sitcom or a number of shows where, you know, the Colbert Report had a real guest. They're having a guest and the guest is improvising. I don't know if they're really getting that he's growing, but I am sensing that it is an arc in that he's going to become a different person than when he began. Yeah, definitely. I think, I suspect, yeah. when that revelation hits and when the whole series is out there, people might start reacting to it differently. I think so. You know, I mean, uh, in a lot of ways for us doing a comedy show, you know, we, we really did sort of give ourselves the challenge uh, of trying to say like, well, you know, what can we do that's it's not just simply a spritz fest between comedians. Uh, what can we do to kind of, you know, have this story, a storyline develop? You know, what we have found is that you, you have to plant a lot of seeds. So in the first sort of two, three, four episodes, we're planting these seeds that they begin to bear fruit later in the season because, it, you know, it's it's kind of like some aha moments for the listener where it's like, oh, that wasn't just a throwaway yeah. thing that, ha- you know, that was mentioned in episode one. It's like, oh, this is something that's now becoming an ongoing saga. Now, the second way that I want to deal with training your brain to face your enemies is actually to recognize when somebody is about to be your enemy. And I'll tell you right now, I have got somebody that is pushing my buttons and we are right at that cusp. Talking about Mark Foster, I mean, even that name just drives me nuts just saying it. Regardless, Mark Foster uh, is almost my enemy right now. That's where we're at because he's suing me personally because of guff pills. (sighs) Claims to have uh, taken guff pills for 48 hours and now has a kidney stone the size of a grape. I mean, that doesn't even sound that big. I'd like to see the x-ray. Not sure if I can get that from him, but that's what he says. And so for today's thought release, I'm going to call this guy, I'm calling Foster, and I'm going to let you eavesdrop on how I deal with a potential enemy. Tell me about yourself. Uh, I've gleaned that you're from Canada. Yeah, I I am from Canada, and uh, I you know grew up in Calgary, Western Canada, and went to school out east. And then I sort of found myself in Toronto, improvising, working with Second City, and from there I you know I, I kind of got onto a couple of uh, comedy shows that were shot down in the states, and I ended up meeting my wife shooting a sketch comedy show for Warner Brothers in Atlanta. And uh, that sort of brought me out to L.A. So did Dexter Guff come from Let's Invent a Character? Did he show up in another sketch? How did the Guff, how did Dexter Guff get invented? So, you know, we had actually, uh, with our show This Is That, we had started shooting some video components as well. And again, kind of satirizing, parodying tropes in online videos. Uh, And so we had done a sketch that was of a TED Talk. But sort of a self-narrated or, or like, a, you know, uh, somebody talking 
their inner monologue as they're giving a TED Talk by yeah. sort of going through all of the recognizable tropes of a TED Talk, you know, with having a slide up of the globe behind it, you know. Yeah, the, the, saying, micro, is, the microphone, yes, the exa- wireless. Ex- they, yeah. Exactly. And what is a TED Talk if not tropes? It's a that's, collection it's, of tropes. Yes, it is. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's uh, there's, they sort of, a lot of them t- seem to fall into a similar pocket. So it, we had done this video and, it sort of had some some real online success and struck a bit of a chord with some folks and and so we ended up having a conversation with Panoply that said you know this is there's something really fun about this space and and trying to come up with like a, a thought leader and and having some fun with it so in in that conversation we just kind of came up with this character and uh, you know we we put together a little half hour demo of of what it might sound like and and we kind of we were hooked panoply was hooked and it was just kind of like this is there's something really interesting and and then and then the challenge is kind of having it be a story making a story with it when you have guests on the show to yeah. what extent is that improved interview either mapped out or are there beats to hit and yeah. how far is their character developed yeah you know so with uh, the people that we have on as guests it's all improvised and actually the the show itself is entirely improvised we do have beats that we are, are trying to hit because of course obviously we have like an overarching place that we're trying to get to by the end of this of the season and by the end of each episode uh, but we come to it through improv that's always been our background and and so we kind of have these beats that we try to hit but in the interviews in particular we will give the heads up to you know whoever we're inviting on as guest a uh, few days in advance and say this is kind of this is the world of the character that you are playing something yeah. in this world and we're so really, you invent the characters well I mean we 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 do but with very broad strokes you yeah. know what I mean like we we really don't want to sort of uh, pigeonhole somebody into playing something that maybe they don't have a connection to so it's kind of like we will say you know it's somewhere in the world of you organize conferences you this is you know this is your this is your world and yeah. and anything that you want to bring to the table as that character we are game with because the people that we're inviting to to improvise with are incredibly talented improvisers and and we want to like give them the full liberty to you know sit in whatever pocket they feel really comfortable with and so then we simply map out a couple of questions and we go on a, a improvised interview and Wait. as an improviser i always almost subconsciously will throw away something that is about a personal connection with the person that you're talking to because it does make the improv uh, richer and it also makes it's it's a bit more fruitful for comedy and to be able to bring in a back history like all of that becomes this imaginary world that you get to play in but it's it's almost through years of improvising you subconsciously go there you know because w- once you have once you have a, a quote unquote history with somebody that becomes something that you can really pull on in the scene in the conversation and whatever you want so it's it's interesting and i think i think with a lot of improvisers seasoned improvisers that's just something that subconsciously is there that you know that that's a good fruitful place to play within and to play from Let's welcome Nancy Newman. Nancy, great to see you. Thanks for being here. Wow, we're doing this. It's actually happening. This is really cool. It's such a pleasure. I can't even tell you. Tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, 17 years ago, you know, I found myself out of work, you know, no job, no partner, no kids, no prospects. And uh, I realized I had to make a change and I needed to do something that was going to make me money based on the fact that I had no real discernible skills. I mean, I was a high school dropout. So I was living in this hotel. TV had been turned off. Electricity gets turned off one night. Whoa. And I'm sitting there in silence. And that's when the penny dropped. Silence. 
silence was going to be what was going to make me money. The bottom line for me was, you know, I wanted to find a way to passively make money while I could do other things I needed to do in my life. Right. I was going in, I was telling people, you know, close your eyes, keep them shut upon pain of death, keep them shut. Right. And then I would silently, you know, I'd cough as I turned on a tape player. And then I would lead them in some sort of guided meditation BS while I went out and did my groceries. Unbelievable. I love that. And I'd go back in and people would be, you know, just as people were coming out of the meditation and people would just be, you know, saying, I feel enlightened. I feel like you've changed my life. Right. And, you know, and, and I, truthfully. Yeah. I took those accolades. Really? I did. And I did not feel any guilt about the fact that I was swindling these people out of thousands of dollars. Amazing. Um, what about the likability of the character? So when I think about the difference between the English office, David Brent, and the American office, Michael Scott, they made they made Steve Carell's character just a lot more likable. Yeah. Un- under the theory that's probably correct, that Americans don't like to be put off or Americans watching broadcast television. Right. Like an identifiable main character. What about that question with uh, Dexter? Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, we, we talk about that a fair bit because, of course, you know, Dexter Guff himself is is... He rubs a lot of people, I think, like a bit of an asshole because that's really like that is kind of who we're satirizing. But I think, you know, the like also literally giving people advice that you could cut through it and say, just be more of an asshole. That is pretty much his advice in life. It really (laughs) is. I mean, it's like we we kind of take sort of these uh, recognizable pieces of advice from, you know, someone trying to help you uh, live a better life. And we actually kind of flip it upside down. So when someone's saying like, uh, you know, to live a better life, what you need to do is expand your social circles, meet meet other people, put yourself out there. And, you know, whereas Dexter Guff's advice would be like, you need to put yourself in a bubble, like shut everything out that does not say that you are crushing it. And that's the best place for you because that's, like you can incubate your creative ideas by yourself in your bubble. Uh, but I think, you know, what what happens over the course of this time is that the person that Dex is revealed to be is very human. And so you, he's like this, he has this wall of a person who, that he projects, but we begin to see these cracks that kind of let people see a little bit more of his life, which I think as that happens, it's a lot more of a human, you, you can kind of see who this guy is. And I think that there's something endearing about it. That's kind of, that's where we're going. That's kind of what we're what we're going for is that as you sort of see a little bit of the cracks in this person, it's kind of like he's he's more complicated than you think. Peter Oldring, thank you for being here. If Dexter were here, what advice might he leave me with? Wake up every day and say, how can I crush it harder? What's the uh, detritus that will be the residue left over once I know I have crushed it? I think what you're left with is just kind of like this. It's almost like an aura. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You just okay. kind of look around you. Things look a little bit brighter. Mm-hmm. It's under a, like a rose-colored uh, uh, sort of a, a lens. And when you see that, when you see yourself under that rose-colored lens, you know, wait a second. Something big has happened. I don't know what it is. Right. I don't know what I did. Right. I don't know who's involved, what's at stake. But something's different. Life's a little bit better. And the only answer is, I crushed it. Dexter Goff, Peter Aldring, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Mike. Nice to be here, man. And now the spiel. Hello. Usually, this is where I come on and say, and now the spiel. And you're going to get the spiel, but here's what I'm doing. I'm handing over the spieling stick. Did you know about this? 
I got, I got the idea from the conch on Lord of the Flies. We determine who's going to do the spiel by who's holding the spieling stick. And I, I'm usually holding the spieling stick. But today, I bequeathed said spieling stick to the hands of my colleague here at Slate, Seth Stevenson. So Slate Seth Stevenson spiels with the stick. He had a great story on an interesting Democratic politician named Seth Moulton, and I've been meaning to read it. Instead, I'd rather hear it. It's how I best get my information. Here now, Seth Stevenson. So a while back, some editors at Slate suggested that a good profile subject for a Slate story might be Congressman Seth Moulton, who is a sophomore Democrat from Massachusetts. And I was picked as the writer, I think in part because I'm about Seth Moulton's age, and I grew up in Massachusetts not too far from where he did, and I even share a first name with him, so I guess I might have some special Seth-related insight into him. <laughs> um, I want to, uh, as someone who got married three months ago, I want to congratulate you on your engagement. What you should be doing is giving me some advice. You got any advice? I'm three months three in. Months in. Yeah. And I realized pretty quickly that, in fact, despite our superficially similar backgrounds, we had led very different lives. Because straight out of college, after graduating undergrad from Harvard as a physics major, Seth Moulton decided to join the Marines. This was summer 2001, and it was a few months before 9-11. How did you expect your military career to go? What were you foreseeing? I expected I would do exactly three and a half years, and the most excitement I might ever get was a peacekeeping mission in the Balkans. And I also thought that I would check that box and never have to serve again. He got a lot more than he bargained for when he joined. He ended up doing four tours of duty in Iraq. He went back even though he didn't have to. And eventually he spoke out about his opposition to the war. He did a lot of media appearances that gained him a national profile. During one of his tours, he did a show on local Iraqi TV with an interpreter named Muhammad. It was called Moulton and Muhammad. And Moulton became so close with Muhammad, the interpreter, that Muhammad later went to stay with Moulton's family in Massachusetts while Muhammad was seeking asylum. But perhaps the most amazing thing about Moulton's military service is that he was awarded a bronze star for fearlessly facing enemy fire in Najaf, which is a major award for valor. And then he basically didn't tell anyone about it, not even his parents, for years. When he eventually ran for Congress in 2014, the Boston Globe dug into his military records, and presumably they were looking for some dirt. But what they turned up was that Moulton had been given that Bronze Star, and in fact, another medal for valor. And he hadn't bothered to mention that at all during the campaign, because he felt it wasn't appropriate for a Marine to go around telling war stories. So you put all this together. And he goes on, he gets an MBA from Harvard and a degree from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and he impresses people along the way like General David Petraeus and General Stanley McChrystal. And you throw in the fact that he's this tall, handsome guy, an extremely fit ex-Marine, he cuts an impressive figure. And people are already talking about whether he's going to run for president at some point, even though he's been in Congress for only one and a half terms. That's why Slate thought we'd profile him. That's why the Politico ran a long story about him over the summer, talking about whether he might be president. So it seemed worth looking into. Is this guy, this handsome, decorated combat veteran, he calls himself a progressive Democrat, he's already an incumbent congressman at the age of 38, is this guy the savior of the Democratic Party? Is he going to be a huge star? Is he going to be a senator? Will someone make him their Veep nominee in 2020? Will he run for president and try to beat Donald Trump, the draft dodger? Seems like the diametric opposite of Seth Moulton in every possible way. So I went to see Congressman Moulton out in Iowa when he gave a speech at the Polk County Steak Fry in Des Moines. Thank you, Polk County Democrats. How are we feeling today? 
This is an event that used to be hosted by the Iowa Senator Tom Harkin, and it's been viewed as a place to kind of launch a national political career. And Seth Moulton opened his speech by saying, Now, a lot of you must be asking, what is a sophomore congressman from Massachusetts doing speaking here in Iowa? And yes, indeed, Congressman, people were sort of wondering that because everybody kind of knows when an out-of-state politician with big ambitions goes to Iowa to give a speech, he's putting himself out there for some kind of consideration. There he was on stage in Des Moines in front of this monstrously large American flag. C-SPAN is broadcasting the speech. The Washington Post has sent two reporters to cover this event. So I was there, too, in Iowa, to size Seth Moulton up. And in the course of watching that speech and in interviewing him one-on-one on a couple of occasions... I started to develop some impressions of Seth Moulton, the politician, not Seth Moulton, the military man, or Seth Moulton, the triple Harvard degree guy. Seth Moulton, the politician. One thing I decided about him as a politician is he does not yet seem to have the common touch. Maybe it's his military background, maybe it's his New England upbringing, but he's just a little bit flinty among the people. And the speech he gave didn't really seem to connect emotionally either. He attempted this preacher-style call and response as he was coming into the home stretch, and he put on a sort of half-hearted, gravelly preacher voice, and in my opinion, the crowd was not fully on board. Say it with me. We will raise you up. You can do better than that, Iowa. We will raise you up. One more time, we will raise you up. So what you see I don't know, maybe put that one back in the oven for 10 minutes, Seth. It doesn't seem like it's fully baked yet. But the bigger problem is, it's not really clear what Seth Moulton stands for. He's been a reliable Democratic vote in Congress. Um, But beyond that, I'm not sure what he's after. He told me on a couple of occasions he thinks Democrats need to put forth bold ideas. But every time I press him on what kinds of bold ideas he had in mind, he offered only really vague mush. I'm, I'm here to listen. Are there specific ideas from other people in Congress that you are, feel are particularly bold and the kind of ones that, that, that you think are what the party needs to get yeah, there, are, there are a lot of bold ideas out there, but I think it's a, it's a little too early to see you know, what, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm listening right now. I'm understanding, trying to understand uh, what matters to people here on the ground. It doesn't matter how bold an idea is in Washington. It matters whether it will make a bold difference in people's lives here. There are some bold ideas out there. For instance, a lot of Democrats are pushing for single-payer health care, which would certainly be a bold new direction for the country. But he's not getting behind that. Or you ask him about identity politics, about the fragmentation that's happening over race and gender and sexuality. And I'll just quickly sidestep it. One of the sort of battles brewing within the Democratic Party is this thing about identity politics and do we need to de-emphasize that because that is divisive? How do you feel about that debate that's happening? I think it's an important debate to have. Some of the issues associated with identity politics are critical moral issues. Um, But we've got to show America that that we don't have a plan just on on these so-called identity politics issues, but that we can be, we have a plan for the economy that uh, we know how to provide for a strong national defense. Uh, we've got to lead on those issues as well. His speech in Iowa didn't spend any time addressing things like police brutality or criminal justice reform, and I suspect he'd prefer not to talk about things like that at all. He'd like to stay in this vague larval stage where he leans really heavily on his biography as a military hero, but just talks in broad, uplifting terms about how he's going to make things better without any real specifics which is fine. At the same time, it seems clear that this is a guy with a ton of ambition in a hurry to get somewhere as a politician. 
and it'd be nice if we were clear what he stands for. The thing he's got more attention for than anything else so far is his open willingness to hate on his own party. For instance, he wants Nancy Pelosi to step down. And when I asked him why, he had two reasons for that, and neither one had anything to do with policy positions. The first was that Nancy Pelosi has been effectively demonized by Republicans so that her approval rating is very low and Republicans can use her in ads against Democrats who are running for office. So that makes her a liability. And his second problem with her is that he feels she keeps young and talented members of her caucus down and holds them back. And of course, implied in that is that one of these young, talented members of the caucus is Seth Moulton, which is sort of the crux of the question with Seth Moulton. So this is a guy who's done ridiculously courageous, selfless things in his life and his military service. But he's also a guy whose political ambitions are just really obvious and seem to grate the wrong way on some people. A guy who's barely in Congress with no political experience beforehand, and he's already taking aggressive public shots at Nancy Pelosi, who, whatever you think of her, has been around Congress for a while and is a competent older woman facing off against a brash, inexperienced young guy. This guy, at age 38, has already written one of these myth-making autobiographical memoirs about himself. It's titled Called to Serve, and it's got a picture of him on the cover in his military camo and wraparound sunglasses. It's coming out soon. This is a guy who goes to lunch with a Politico reporter and orders a glass of milk with lunch and declares, I love milk, which is kind of wholesome, but also performatively wholesome. Here's a 38-year-old guy who's in front of a reporter and says, I love milk. A couple weeks before his Iowa speech, I went to spend some time with Moulton in Massachusetts, and his comms team had set up this day where he was going to give an award for service to someone in his district who'd done a noble, public-spirited deed. And then I followed Moulton around as he did photo ops with people picking up litter. And it was a little frustrating to me, because the idea was for me to spend time with this guy and get to see how he ticks, and here was this carefully staged tour. It was all about service. Service is great. We should all give back. But it's also this incredibly anodyne thing to wrap yourself in as a politician and to stand above the fray because who can question the wonderfulness of service? And I feel like that is kind of Seth Moulton in a nutshell. That's his approach. Even when I tried to dig in on service and asked if he thought we should have mandatory national service, which is another bold idea that's kicked around for a while in the Democratic Party, he wouldn't even get behind that. At the same time, I started to feel some sympathy for this guy because he's done these amazing things in his life. He's smart. He's ambitious. He's done this heroic military service, and he's got some wuss, me, questioning his motives, which is absurd. But all that stuff, what it adds up to is a political candidate with a resume perfectly crafted for a different age. Here's the handsome, polished, centrist white guy, the ex-Marine. He's kind of an updated John Kerry in a way. And it's not clear that's at all what the Democratic primary voter is looking for in the age of Bernie Sanders. Another polished, very politically cautious white guy with a Harvard degree and a nice side part. And if somehow he did get into a general election, would he really be the guy who could reach the heartland, white working class voter that he seems to be targeting in Iowa, the person he wants to swing back from Donald Trump? Because here's a coastal elite guy, the cream of the coastal elite, prep school, three Harvard degrees, confident, technocratic fellow, thinks he should be in charge. And based on 2016, it's just not clear swing voters are looking for that either. So maybe Seth Moulton will get better at giving speeches and better at baby kissing and glad handing. And maybe he'll be exactly what people are looking for by the time it's his turn at bat. But for now, Seth Moulton occupies this uncomfortable space in American politics. And I'll be very curious to see where it takes him.
And that's it for today's show. Just producer Dan Schrader believes millennials are the new breakout session. Just producer Mary Wilson was named to the 40 with a body temperature and Celsius under 40 list. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He doesn't paywall his insights behind the self-actualization paradigm. The Gist, formerly dominant in the podcast space, now undertaking a pivot to reggaeton. Umpru depru duperu, and thanks for listening.